This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Wednesday, March 1st, and maybe don't spend all that loan money just yet. We start here. In a highly anticipated hearing, the Supreme Court appears deeply skeptical of President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. In effect, this is a grant of $400 billion. The White House now prepares for a failing grade. What if you gave a conservative political conference and no one came? Right now, it's not at all clear that the road to the Republican nomination runs through CPAC. What a bunch of no-shows say about CPAC and the Republican presidential race. And stitch this with a federal ban. And this is really coming amid these heightened concerns when it comes to security. TikTok is getting wiped from government phones, but could yours be next? From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. The crazy thing about the Supreme Court is that in just a few minutes, the plight of literally millions of Americans can suddenly change. Like same-sex marriage, boom, legal all of a sudden. Abortion in red states, boom, illegal. There's no higher court to appeal to. It's done. And yet rarely do the justices have a decision in front of them that would take thousands of dollars out of Americans' bank accounts that they had planned on saving to rewrite the ledger sheet that has been promised by the White House. Student debt has got to go. Make some noise. Well, that was the scene yesterday as the Supreme Court weighed the decision by the Biden administration to forgive student loan debt for up to 40 million Americans. They're young people who simply don't have either the generational wealth, don't have the means. Debt is something that is going to weigh us down and not let us you know, prosper in life as we continue. ABC senior national correspondent Terry Moran covers the court. Terry, we talked yesterday with Devin Dwyer about whether opponents to this loan relief had a case. Well, the justices seem to think that they certainly did. They sure did. They went right to the heart of the case. There are some procedural issues, some standing issues, as they say. Do these states have the grounds to sue? But the court's conservatives clearly signaled that they want to get to the merits of this case and that they think President Biden has gone too far with this massive $400 billion student loan forgiveness plan and that for such a sweeping plan with so much taxpayer money at stake, uh, Congress has to approve such huge sums. That's really what uh, the justices were signaling. As a cancellation of $400 billion in debt, In effect, this is a grant of $400 billion. They were a little bit open on some of the arguments. I actually thought they were excellent arguments by the administration's lawyer. These are federal loans between the federal government and student loan borrowers. So this is a situation where the secretary is really acting within the core of his expertise and his authority. But she was definitely, definitely fighting uphill. And I understand the secretary has considerable expertise when it comes to educational affairs. Uh, but with, in terms of macroeconomic policy, do we normally assume that every, every secretary cabinet member, as learned as they are, uh, has that kind of knowledge? They kept asking, did Congress really think when they passed the law at issue here, right after 
uh, you know, 9-11 in the early years of the Iraq war, trying to help people uh, in a national emergency. People were joining the military if they had student debt. Did they really think they were approving a nationwide program that would reach almost half a trillion dollars, 40 million people? And so it couldn't have surprised Congress one bit that in response to hardship posed by a national emergency, the secretary might consider similarly providing discharge if that's what it takes to make sure borrowers don't default. You think because there's a provision to allow waiver when your school closes, that because of that Congress shouldn't have been surprised when half a trillion dollars is wiped off the books? Also, Justice Neil Gorsuch raised the issue of fairness. How is this fair? How is it fair to people who have paid their loans already? How is it fair to people who plan their lives around not taking out loans or or people who don't go to college? I didn't see anything in the memorandum that dealt with those kinds of questions. And if there is something, I'd be appreciative if you could point me to it. No, there's not. But that's because I think that those kinds of arguments are inconsistent with the statutory scheme that Congress set up here. They came again and again to that notion that something that is a nationwide issue like this, with all these competing interests, needs to be done by the national legislature, the Congress. In something like this, there are going to be winners and losers. uh, And... um, That raises similar concerns about individual rights, individual liberty. Well, is part of that, Terry, kind of about vibes, like kind of like the the ideological outlook of some of these justices in this sort of lopsided conservative court? I guess I'm wondering, like, would this have been the case with a more liberal court back in the day? Or is the Supreme Court just generally going to be like, no, deal with Congress. Like, you don't just get to make everything up as you go along, Mr. President. Well, you know, yes and no. I mean, yes, there's no question the liberals are on one side in this case and the the conservatives on the other. Congress didn't say exactly the circumstances in which it wanted the secretary to use this authority. Of course not. This is, this is a, a bill about, like, what happens when you have an emergency. But over the past several years, we've seen these big cases come before the court again and again, big national problems that presidents failing to get Congress to act have scrambled to find some kind of power that they might have to, to solve it. President Obama and, and the climate change case that eventually came before the court. President Trump uh, and his remain in Mexico policy. The case reminds me of the one we had a few years ago under a different administration where the administration tried acting on its own to cancel the Dreamers program. uh, And we blocked that effort. And in each case, in one, the liberals basically said, no, president doesn't have this power. It needs to be achieved by Congress. And what we have are presidents, the last three presidents, very different guys, each getting so frustrated with a a Congress that is broken that they decide to act unilaterally, and the court is stepping in and striking that down. Hey, Terry, what would the Biden administration do if they do lose? Like, is there a plan B here for all these students and former students who are probably wondering, like, wait, do I have $20,000 or not? You know, when we ask White House officials that, they say, well, you know, we're going to win this case. Well, that's a way of evading the the, the real issue, which is that <laughs> okay, good luck. Th- there really isn't much of a plan B if, in fact, this was the plan B. This was the plan. The president found some aspect of the law in mm-hmm. order that would enable him, he believed, to forgive almost half a trillion dollars in student loan debt. And those 
parts of laws are not easy to find. There's no explicit law. In fact, it was Nancy Pelosi who said, you know, not long ago, the president can't do this. The Congress does. He can postpone. He can delay. But he does not have that power. That would that has to be an act of Congress. She's changed her mind. But really, this was he told his lawyers, go find me some something that I can do to fix this problem. This is it. There is no plan B. Yeah, and this ruling doesn't come out for several months, but almost to a person who walked out of that courtroom yesterday, it sounded like everyone was like, well, get ready. Like, this is not going to happen. All right, Terry Moran in Washington. Thank you so much. Yep, you bet, Brad. Next up on Start Here, it's supposed to be one of the biggest conservative gatherings of the year, so why don't conservative politicians want to show? We're back in a bit. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. Normally, today would be the unofficial kickoff to Republican campaign season. Hours from now, the Conservative Political Action Conference is going to get underway. More than a year before a presidential election, this is where conservatives try to prove themselves. Great to be back at CPAC. It's like a must-visit on the trail. And yet this year, a lot of those familiar faces aren't even bothering to show up. And that could reveal what this next year of campaigning is about to look like. ABC's political director Rick Klein is with us. Rick, I mean, this is the crowd that President Trump felt the need to finally win over. He did. What, now no one seems to care about these people? What's with all the no-shows? Brad, there is a lot going on at at, at CPAC this year, Uh, and it's always a a big event, but this year it does look a lot different, and it's for a number of factors. One has to do with CPAC leadership itself. Matt Schlapp, the longtime head of the Conservative Political Action Committee. I'd like to declare something right now. My pronouns are USA. How about it, huh? He stands accused now of, uh, of, of a sexual assault, uh, accused by a former staffer to Herschel Walker, the failed Senate candidate. He's denied that allegation, and the main people are standing with him, including President Trump. But it has cast a bit of a cloud over, over CPAC. So, though, have the divisions inside the Republican Party. You've got a group of Republicans who essentially weren't invited at all or disinvited themselves because the crowd is perceived as uh, so MAGA-friendly. A lot of potential candidates weren't invited, and others, like Mike Pence, decided not to go, maybe because because there's a cloud, maybe also because this is such a Trumpy crowd that he might get booed. Then you've got others, uh, including most prominently Ron DeSantis, who think, you know what, I may be able to do my own thing. There's a fissure inside the Republican Party. Uh, and right now, it's not at all clear that the road to the Republican nomination runs through CPAC. Wait, if it doesn't run through CPAC, who does it run through? 
I had I thought I had been told that the modern Republican Party is more and more CPAC-y. Like the, these are the hardcore conservatives that you need to have on your side if you're actually going to win anything at the national level. If these are not the voters you're trying to attract, who are? Follow the money, Brad. Uh, as the saying goes in politics, you've got major conservative organizations, including the Club for Growth and the Koch Brothers organizations. Both of them have indicated that they are not going to support uh, Donald Trump for, for president, either formally or informally. They are sending out that word. In fact, the Club for Growth is gathering people uh, down in, in Florida just this week in kind of a shadow CPAC, though this one behind closed doors. And Donor World, that's where you hear from so many Republicans who may have liked Donald Trump, may have voted for him once or even twice, but feel like it is time for a fresh voice and a fresh face. That's where a lot of the interest in Ron DeSantis has come about. That's where the interest in Nikki Haley has come about. For a strong America, for a proud America, I am running for president of the United States of America. Haley is one of the very few who's trying to straddle those worlds. She'll be at both the Club for Growth event behind closed doors and then out in front of the cameras for for everyone to see at CPAC. You mentioned Ron DeSantis kind of doing his own thing. I mean, it does seem like he's probably about to announce his own run for president, but he hasn't done that yet. I'm wondering, we've been seeing a ton of him this last week, just not like never an announcement of what he's seeking to do next. Is there a sense now of of when he would announce and what that would actually look like, what his campaign would be compared to others? He's writing his own rules as he goes along. They let the corporate media define the terms of the debate. They let the left launch attacks. And I said that that's not the posture you want. We're going on offense. He's only attending uh, events that, that are to his said, choosing. He's not going to the big uh, the big major gatherings. We've seen reporting now in the New York Times that he's set to announce some early state travel uh, sometime in the month of March. But none of that's happened so far. He has a brand new book that coincidentally is out just this week. Uh, and he'll also be there in front of the Club for Growth. So he's doing everything that you need to do to run for president short of the actual announcement. And, and the fact is, he's got more time and flexibility than anyone else out there. Trump, of course, is already in. DeSantis is the only other one who's even close to him in the polls, even cracking the double digits, and he's well beyond that. And he's doing it by talking to exclusively the audiences he wants to be talking to. On his book tour, he's only talking to conservative media outlets so far. The state of Florida is the new sheriff in town. His message is that he thinks he can make America what Florida has been. Uh, That is a compelling message to a lot of Republican voters, including in some of the... in some states that are quite blue, including some that are quite red, whether it sells nationally or not is the big test. But he is hoping that he can continue to use Florida as a bit of a conservative governance lab and say, look what I did here. This is what I can do everywhere. It is wild, though, that when you're saying like, hey, I'm running to be president of everyone here, you know, I'm running for the nomination of all Republicans, that you wouldn't show up to an event specifically, perhaps because you might be booed. I know there's other things happening here, but like the, the, the sort of setting yourself up as the front runner is such a key thing to what we're about to see here. Uh, Rick Klein, thank you so much. Thank you, Brad. A few years ago, there was a moment where it really seemed like TikTok might only exist in the U.S. for a few more hours. And in those hours, TikTok users were freaking out. I'm financially supporting my family because of this. I'm literally starting my career and inspiring people and changing people's lives because of this. I've been on this app since I was, like, born. And there's no, like, amount of words I can put together to say thank you. And in case this actually happens... Please click the YouTube icon because I really don't want to lose you guys.
Remember, President Trump had just threatened to ban the app entirely in the U.S. Uh, So we'll either close up TikTok in this country for security reasons or it'll be sold. And while his efforts were later deemed illegal by U.S. courts, TikTok creators didn't know that at the time. They were freaking out. Well, since then, the app has only become more popular, and yet the U.S. government appears more convinced than ever that this app truly is a national security risk. The Biden administration is focused on the challenge of certain countries, including China, seeking to leverage digital technologies and Americans' data in ways that present unacceptable national security risks. Earlier this week, President Biden gave federal agencies a deadline to get TikTok off every government-owned device in the country. And now Canada, along with the European Union, have done the same. So let's go to ABC's Elizabeth Schulze, who covers the intersection of business and politics. Elizabeth, how does this U.S. ban work and, and why now? Well, you know, we've been hearing about concerns about TikTok, Brad, from the federal government for years now. And now we're actually seeing steps to get rid of it, at least on government-issued devices. So the Biden administration said this week that all federal agencies basically have 30 days to delete the app from government-issued devices. This was actually in response to a law passed by Congress at the end of last year that banned TikTok on most of these these phones or tablets, most of these devices. And, And Canada, the European Union have passed similar laws. And actually about half of U.S. states have also passed full or partial bans for TikTok when it comes to government employees. This is all about China testing the American resolve, whether it's with TikTok or the balloon or whatever the thing is going to be next month. But what's key here when it comes to what these bans look like in effect is that these are government-issued devices. So if you work for the federal government or the state government in a place where this has gone into effect, you can no longer use the app on that device. And this is really coming amid these heightened concerns when it comes to security that we've been hearing about and that are being amplified from both Republicans and Democrats across the country, Brad. But Elizabeth, you say like national security concerns. Can you explain exactly what that means? Because like do do U.S. security agencies think that TikTok is like keeping your phones and microphones on like on government officials phones or like does it just know what dance videos these officials like? Like what what is the actual national security concern? Right. Okay. So there are a couple of key reasons when it comes to TikTok as a security risk. And it stems from the reality that TikTok is owned by a company that's based in China. First, there's this issue around data security that TikTok's Chinese owner, which is a company called ByteDance, basically could be forced to turn over U.S. user data to the Chinese government. The idea of entrusting that much data that much uh, ability to shape content and engage in influence operations, that much access to people's devices uh, in effect to that government is something that concerns us. And that is a very different scenario, Brad, than a lot of businesses operating in the U.S. It would be very unusual to have to turn over data to the government. But there are actually laws in China that can require companies to give the government access to any data if it's requested. So that's a risk that a lot of U.S. officials don't want to take. I mean, we've got to worry about the data that the Chinese government is gathering on every single individual and all the social engineering that comes from that. And we're talking about 100 million monthly active users in the U.S. This is just a massive consumer base, a lot of data, and at the very micro level. A second concern comes to misinformation. The Chinese government could use it to control data collection on millions of users or control the recommendation algorithm, uh, which could be used for influence operations if they so chose. We've actually heard the director of the FBI warn that the Chinese government could 
use TikTok to manipulate content, algorithms, and actually spread misinformation that could then affect how U.S. users think about politics or even go so far as to influence political outcomes. And that's something that could have real repercussions across the country. We've already seen meddling in elections from other foreign governments, and that's something that is a concern when it comes to TikTok and the Chinese government, at least according to officials in the U.S. And then finally, there's kind of this broader concern that TikTok could get access to other information on users' phones. So, you know, once you've downloaded the app, could it then track your location, your internet browsing data outside of TikTok? Could that information be shared with the government? Could that be used for spying purposes? It's a concern for uh, high-level people uh, in the government because with that data, uh, ByteDance can can tell where you are. If you're using TikTok, they know where your location is. So I mean, We're not talking about like the Chinese government listening to you when you have the app open and you're watching videos on TikTok. But ultimately, there is this concern that they're going to be able to know so much information about you because of what you're watching. It could be used for spying or could pose a national security threat. Well, and Elizabeth, the White House says, I thought this was interesting this week, when the White House says it will, quote, continue to look at other actions on TikTok. Is that code for, like, we might still ban the thing nationwide? Like, what does that mean? You know, it's not out of the question. We've actually seen legislation in Congress to have a full-out ban on TikTok in the U.S. There is some momentum for this to have it removed from Americans' phones altogether. We're here for the long run. And continue to share your voice here and let's stand for TikTok. TikTok has kind of tried to fight back against this idea. That was something, as you pointed out earlier, that was proposed by the Trump administration. And they tried to kind of push back by saying instead they will host all of the U.S. data on servers in the U.S., That has not kind of been enough to deter lawmakers. And actually, for the first time ever, we're going to hear the CEO of TikTok testify before Congress next month. There is a lot of momentum on this. There is a possibility that this could be taken even further, but it's a really popular app and there could be backlash from users if that happens, too. Yeah, and TikTok insists that these security concerns are fiction. The company called the U.S. bans on government phones political theater. But worth remembering that ByteDance had to admit in December that some Beijing employees had actually gotten access to data belonging to some American journalists that they wanted to track. The company said those employees are gone now. Elizabeth Schulze, thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Brad. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, some people say I'm always late. I tell them it's all relativity. One last thing is next. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. And one last thing. Anyone who tells you there's no such thing as East Coast bias has probably never had to work in broadcasting. 
Gina, what time zone are you in? Like right now, because I get confused about what time zone you're in. I'm in the central time zone in Houston, but I leave my computer on New York time. <laughs> <laughs> to deal with us people, I see. Yes. That's ABC's Gina Sinceri, who covers NASA in Houston. Because she's in Texas, she has to be alert well before 6 a.m. for Good Morning America every day. The West Coast correspondents have to wake up in the middle of the night. But what's your workday going to be like if you work on the moon? Three, two, one, and liftoff of Artemis One. This week, the European Space Agency came forward and said the moon should have a dedicated time zone. In addition to Greenwich Mean Time and Pacific Time, there would also be moon time. A moon mission runs usually when other countries have sent rovers to the moon. The mission runs on the time of the country that's operating the spacecraft. There are a couple reasons to make this a thing. For one, if people are going to be working and even living on the moon for long stretches of time, they would need to know what time their day begins and ends. And this scenario is not nearly as far off as you might think. Space agencies around the world are actively preparing for moon residency plans. The long-term goal is a habitat on the moon. The other more pressing reason is that all these various missions with all these collaborations between different countries are going to need perfectly synchronized clocks. There is precedent for this, the International Space Station operates on so-called universal time, which is basically really a fancy atomic clock that all tick together. But life on the moon will be even more complicated. Defining lunar time is not simple. At some point, someone decided the year was uh, 365 days. I think that was way before my time and yours. For one, a day isn't a day on the moon. When you're on the lunar surface, the Earth is always in the same position. The sun only rises once a month. So noon has a slightly different meaning there. Even more weirdly, you're not even ready for this, a clock will actually tick faster on the moon than on Earth. Less gravity means faster time. Ask your high school physics teacher, it's true. The European Space Agency says they don't necessarily need the moon's daytime hours to line up with their own, but someone's got to make a decision. Ideally, this would guide future decisions beyond our orbit. Think about when we go to Mars, you know... (laughs) The Earth zips around the at the sun, what, like 67,000 miles per hour, so we make a full revolution in 365 days. Mars is slower, and that takes 687 Earth days. How is a human body going to adapt to that? And with the NASA folks in Houston planning new lunar landings starting in the next couple years, the clock is ticking wherever you are. I personally am off on Friday afternoons because we don't have a show Saturday. I feel like no one ever pays attention to that because they're working. So, like, imagine if you were on the moon, just constant emails. Ugh. If you're enjoying the show, by the way, don't keep it a secret. Hit us up with a five-star rating and review wherever you listen. Or, hey, tell a friend. Text an episode to somebody. Just be mindful of what time it is for that person you're texting. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? 
Find the Campaign Throwback Series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.